Welcome to Passing Judgment. I'm your host, Loyal Law School professor Jessica Levinson. This is a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I am joined today by the show's co-host and producer and all-around renaissance man, Joe Armstrong. Joe, what are we talking about in politics and law? And we actually do have something in between today. We do indeed, Jessica, all around Renaissance Man. I think I'm going to put that on my business card. So thank you for that vote of confidence. I'm trying. So today, Jessica, we are going to discuss the state of Mississippi has asked the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade in no uncertain terms. The second story today will be Trump confidant Tom Barrick was arrested and indicted on a number of charges, pretty serious ones, including working as an unregistered foreign agent, obstructing justice and making false statements to law enforcement. And I'm going to have the third one be a surprise. So when we get there, we will all enjoy it or not enjoy it equally. But let's jump right in about this abortion challenge, Jessica. We have talked a lot about challenges to abortion rights on passing judgment, as well as to the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision. And that decision isn't the only ruling on American women's right to choose, but it is perhaps the most famous. Now, the origin of this challenge for Mississippi can be traced to rulings in lower courts that struck down a Mississippi law called the Gestational Age Act. That act banned most abortions after 15 weeks. Exceptions were made solely for medical emergencies or severe fetal abnormality. Now, fast forward to this week, Mississippi Attorney General Lynn Fitch went a lot farther, saying that both the Roe and Casey rulings were egregiously wrong, her words, and also that, quote, the conclusion that abortion is a constitutional right has no basis in text, structure, history, or tradition. Now, Jessica, those are a lot of words. What do they mean by that? What is Attorney General Fitch saying here? Yeah, thank you for that really great rundown of what's happening in this incredibly important case. So basically, Mississippi is using the magic words when they say no basis in text, structure, history, or tradition. I just finished teaching constitutional law over the summer to my students. And what I talk about with them is the idea of when we're analyzing constitutional questions, we start with the text. If the text doesn't give us an answer, we look to the structure. Then we tend to look to precedent Uh, The precedent is not in favor of Mississippi, and that's why they don't list it here. And then we look at history, tradition, things like values and consequences. And so what Mississippi is saying is there's no right to abortion in the U.S. Constitution. The structure of the Constitution does not provide that there's a right to an abortion. And if you look further back before Roe v. Wade, in fact, The history and tradition of our country indicate that we can, in fact, restrict abortion. So this is an incredibly aggressive legal move where they're saying, really, constitutionally, there's nothing to support a woman's ability to have access to an abortion, at least pre-viability. So I think it makes sense, maybe very briefly, to talk to listeners about how we ended up in the Roe v. Wade decision. So... Roe v. Wade, as listeners know, huge 1973 decision where the court locates in the right to privacy the idea that women have the ability under the Constitution to obtain access to abortion. And they create something called the trimester framework, where basically a woman's rights to obtain an abortion are strongest in the beginning of a pregnancy and then a state's right to say, 
no, we're going to restrict this abortion or ban this abortion are strongest at the end of the pregnancy. But it doesn't all start with that decision. It actually starts arguably in 1965 with a case called Griswold. And that case dealt with whether or not a state could ban contraception for married couples. And the court said, you can't prohibit that, Connecticut, and you can't prohibit it based on this thing that we've located in the penumbras, in the emanations of the Constitution, the right to privacy. Now, Joe, I know what you're thinking, like, does the Constitution emanate? Does it have penumbras? And the answer is, well, according to a majority of the Supreme Court, it does. And so the court said, look, we know that it's not written anywhere in the Constitution that there's a right to obtain contraception, in this case, for a married couple. But we're going to say that there's this right to privacy, and it includes this right. Now, fast forward seven years later, the Eisenstadt case in 1972 In that case, the court also said that a state cannot ban contraception for unmarried couples, again, on the same theory that under the Constitution, under what emanates from the Constitution, there's this right to privacy. That brings us a year later to the Roe decision, where they also, under this frankly, newly defined right to privacy. They say it includes not only contraception for married couples, contraception for unmarried couples, but it also includes reproductive choice for women, at least in some circumstances. Now, Joe, you very rightly said the main case that gives us our current standard now is actually a 1992 case called Casey versus Planned Parenthood. And under that case, the current standard is that pre-viability, which we typically put at about 24 weeks into a pregnancy, that women can obtain an abortion and states cannot create a, quote, undue burden on that right. So states can create a burden, but it can't be undue. Joe, something you and I have talked about a lot over the last year of the podcast, you know, what's an undue burden? It's whatever five members of the majority of the court say it is. And then post-viability states can ban abortions, um, typically with exceptions for emergency circumstances like the life of the mother. And so that's where we are. And that is, I hope, not too long of an explanation of what Mississippi means. What Mississippi is saying is, let's overturn Roe and Casey, because they never should have been decisions in the first place. All right, Jessica, thank you for that. We've talked a bit about the history, how we got to where we are. Now let's talk about where we are now. Now I've sourced the following data from a number of places, including the National Center for Biotechnology Information and elsewhere. A lot of Google searching went on in my house today. The data show that women of color and of poorer socioeconomic status have higher abortion rates. So that's our starting point. Also, this data is, I'm about to give you some about 2008 but the most solid data I can find on this. So white women, women not of color, they have on average about 12 abortions per 1,000 women of reproductive age. Now, when you move to more minority uh, groups here, 29 abortions per 1,000 women for Hispanic women and 40 abortions per 1,000 non-Hispanic black women. Also, once you factor poverty into the mix, we are looking at women below the federal poverty level. That's 52 abortions per 1,000 women. So that's the highest of them all. Now, 
know, on the other end, if you look at people who have more means, women with incomes greater than 200% of that federal poverty level, you're looking at only nine abortions per 1,000 women of childbearing age. So abortion opponents have referred to these data to make a case that poorer women and women of color are being exploited by abortion providers, although, according to my research and other people's research who do it a lot better than I do, there is no evidence of racial targeting or profiteering by abortion providers. Now, in terms of the number of abortion clinics in America, that number has been dwindling. There were about 452 in 1996, 381 abortion clinics in 2005, and by 2021, that number is around 272. Also, just to note that the most available data for that was from 2014. Now, what I'm about to say, this is not a scientific paradigm, but a little bit of a thought experiment, but I ran some numbers using Google Maps, Jessica. So let's say you are a pregnant woman in Eastport, Mississippi. That's in the state's northeast corner. There's one abortion clinic in Mississippi. That's in Jackson, Mississippi. So Eastport, Mississippi is about as far away as you can get from Jackson and still be in the state of Mississippi. And if that's the case, you're looking at traveling 261 miles. According to Google, that's about four hours and 15 minutes in a car. Now, Mississippi is far from alone in having very few abortion clinics. The states of Kentucky, Missouri, North Dakota, South Dakota, and West Virginia only have one remaining abortion provider. Now, taking the largest of those states by mileage or uh, geographic mileage, if you apply the same paradigm that I did in Mississippi to North Dakota, you're looking at a pregnant woman who wants an abortion to travel 425 miles. That's from just outside of Fortuna, North Dakota, all the way to Fargo on the entire other side of the state. That's a six-hour and 38-minute trip one way. Now, you might say, is it possible for women to travel to other states to get an abortion? And that answer is yes, maybe, but that's not really the point of this conversation, is it? And here is where the reality check lies. It's taking us back to Mississippi here. Abortion opponents have been chipping away at this constitutional right for decades, and that brings us back to Mississippi, where we are today with this new challenge to Roe versus Wade. I'm almost done, Jessica. Hang with me here. What are the current abortion laws in Mississippi? This is how they currently stand. Uh, Abortions are allowed up to 16 weeks in the pregnancy. Two in-person trips are required to that clinic, and they must be separated by at least 24 hours. And as a note, during the first of those two visits, the clinic is required to give the pregnant woman false information about a link between abortion and breast cancer. And if the woman is a minor under the age of 18, an unemancipated minor typically needs written consent from both parents or their legal guardians there. The state of Mississippi has also enacted bans on abortion after 6 and 15 weeks, but neither of those bans is in effect right now due to court orders finding those bans unconstitutional. So that's a lot to chew on, Jessica. Now, bringing us back to this challenge we're talking about, does this new challenge really represent a change in strategy for Mississippi or for anyone else challenging abortion? Yes and no, but I want to. I know we talked about this a little bit before. It's not going to shock our listeners to know that we talk about our topics until you spring one on me, uh, like you're going to today beforehand. And I'm so thankful that you talked about the statistics, and it really does bear repeating who is disproportionately affected by these restrictive abortion laws. And it's typically women of color. You might you know, there might be evidence that it doesn't target women of color, but it is typically women of color who don't have access to resources for whom it is very difficult to find time and the ability to travel long distances to obtain an abortion. So I want to point out that there are even now, before we have this big case, 
there are places in America where it's very, very difficult for a woman to obtain access to an abortion. Now, the court may say that it's not an undue burden, but that doesn't mean that practically speaking it's not very difficult. And so just emphasizing everything you you laid out so well. Now, with respect to Mississippi, you asked me, you know, is it a change in strategy? It really is, I think. As you said, this Mississippi abortion law bans all abortions after 15 weeks. That's obviously pre-viability. And so it when we talked about this at the time, Joe, it felt fairly clear. Well, if you uphold this ban, then you're upending Roe and Casey. Now, in May, when the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case, uh, Mississippi had said, well, look, Supreme Court only overturned Roe if that's the only way to uphold the state law. Now, I would argue it kind of is the only way to uphold the state law. But now they're saying the kind of quieter part out loud. And now they're saying what we talked about, which is that you have to overturn Roe, you have to overturn Casey. They have no basis in text, structure, history, or tradition. And again, pointing out they don't mention the word that I talked to my students about, precedent, because the precedent obviously goes against them because of uh, Roe and Casey. So that's basically where we are. It's a change in tactic in some ways, but in some ways it it felt like such a full frontal attack on Roe anyway. Um, I'm not sure it actually is. All right, Jessica, all that said, procedurally speaking, what happens next? So there'll be filings um, over the summer. The Supreme Court agreed to hear this case in May of 2021. And so there'll be filings, there'll be oral arguments, and then there'll be a decision by June 30th, which is typically the last day of the term, 2022. Uh, So for listeners who are listening to this podcast right around the time that we're recording it, uh, yes, it could be 11 months before we have a decision. And, you know, the court, obviously, they can always decide to make a decision more quickly. But as we've seen last term, the court held some of those big controversial cases, even ones that were argued in the very beginning of the term, November, December, until the the very end. All right, Jessica. Now, as we all know, there is currently a strong conservative majority on the Supreme Court. So what does that mean the implications are here? And what are the chances, do you think, at the end of the day, sometime between now and the end of June next year, that the court will overturn Roe versus Wade or Casey or both of them? Yeah, I think obviously this this is the big question. I think it's fair to say that there are at least six members of the court who would never have voted in the majority of Roe or Casey to begin with. So the the six conservative members of the court would not have an, an initial matter said that under this right to privacy, it includes a right to obtain access to an abortion. So really the question is, will this group vote according to, you know, how they feel, how they would have ruled in the in a first instance? Or are there enough members that would say, look, it's not how I would have ruled, but it is the law of the land. And so will they say, I'm stuck with stare decisis. So it really comes down to, will the conservatives say, look, we made a hash of this. We, you know, typically we have to adhere to precedent, but this precedent is wrong for these reasons. And so we're going to overturn Roe and Casey. Now, I do want people to remember, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, it doesn't therefore immediately outlaw 
all abortions. What it means is that it really your experience and your ability to obtain an abortion will be dependent state by state. So uh, people know we record this podcast from California. California is not going to implement uh, restrictive abortion laws. Now, there's some discussion, which I think we should probably do a different episode on, as to whether or not there's a slippery slope where the Supreme Court could ever say states cannot provide access to an abortion, but that's absolutely not where we are right now. So now we are going to move on to a different topic. We are going to talk about who is Tom Barrick and why is he one of our few topics on passing judgment. So Joe, who is this international man of not that much mystery? All right, Jessica. Yes, Tom Barrack. He is in the news because he was arrested this week and charged that he acted as a clandestine agent for the United Arab Emirates. Among the things about which he is being accused are conspiracy, failing to register as a foreign agent, obstruction of justice, and four counts of making false statements to the FBI. Now, a little bit of biographical information about Mr. Barrack. Barrack is a native of Southern California, having been born and raised in Culver City, California. So that's who he is. What is his relationship to um, somebody I think we've talked about once or twice on the podcast, former President Donald Trump? Yes, a little-known real estate magnate from the 80s. So Barrick's ties to the former president date back to the mid-80s when he sold Trump a 20% stake in Alexander's department stores. And at that point, Donald Trump was just in his pre-reality TV and politician years. He was merely a businessman and real estate mogul. Trump then bought the Plaza Hotel in midtown Manhattan from Barrick for $410 million. Now, Trump would later lose both of those investments to bankruptcy. Then in 2010, Barrick purchased millions of Trump's son-in-law Jared Kushner's debt on a Fifth Avenue property. Kushner managed to circumvent a bankruptcy of his own when Donald Trump implored Barrick to shrink Kushner's debt accountability in that transaction. So fast forward to Trump's 2016 campaign for president, by which point Barrick endorsed Trump and spoke at the 2016 Republican National Convention. He was also a major donor to Donald Trump's campaign, co-funding a super PAC called Rebuilding America Now with Paul Manafort that raised $23 million for Trump's campaign. So, Jessica, now we know who he is and why we're talking about him. What are the latest legal developments in this case? Well, the latest legal developments is that he was before a federal judge on Friday, a federal judge in Southern California, where this was an initial court appearance. And the judge ordered him released and freed on bail. The bail package includes a $250 million bond. It's secured by $5 million in cash, about $21 million in securities, and equity in barracks homes. He also has to wear a GPS monitoring bracelet. Uh, he has to surrender his passport. He can't transfer funds overseas. His travel is severely restricted, basically to the place he is right now, Southern California, and where he will be having his next hearing in New York. And uh, that hearing, which will be an arraignment, we expect will take place uh, early next week, again, in New York. All right, Jessica. Now, it's widely known that Barrick has been working with Middle Eastern business and governmental interests since the early 70s. He's had business deals with Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Qatar. So what has changed here, you know, in terms of why he's facing these charges now? How did he step over a line to be indicted for working for the interests of a foreign power? Yeah, well, this is what we know. The indictment alleges that Barrick worked behind the scenes to influence U.S. government policy in relation to the UAE. 
And the law says American citizens that are acting in that capacity have to register as an agent of a foreign government. We've actually talked about this before with respect to other associates of the former president. So the indictment also includes accusations that Barrick made false statements about his uh, UAE activities during a 2019 interview with the FBI. We've also, Joe, talked about making false statements to uh, the FBI. So we have a little bit of a deja vu all over again. Uh, Again, the indictment. None of this has been proved yet. These are just the allegations. All right, Jessica. So legal exposure here, the big question, does former President Donald Trump, about whom Barrick was so fond, does he face any legal liability here? At this point, I don't see it. At this point, I think this is really, um, it only touches former President Trump in the sense that he constantly talked about uh, surrounding himself with only the best people. Uh, But I don't think these particular allegations um, at this point would create legal exposure for him. All right, Jessica. So we'll keep an eye on that as that uh, that trial proceeds. Now, before we get on out of here, before uh, the rest of the weekend proceeds, one more topic here. We have a pro football coach was fired over refusal to get a vaccine. Now, this is a bit of uh, Jessica's favorite subject matter, professional sports. Isn't that right, my dear friend, Jessica? You know, Jessica, I've always wondered, what's your favorite team? Oh, I mean... you know, it's like a it's, it's like a parent picking their favorite child. I just simply couldn't go there. <laughs> There's so many to choose from. And you're a native Angelino. It's such low-hanging fruit. You just pick one. All right, let's move on. Our question here is a bit of a hypothetical. So news broke today that late this week, a guy named Rick Dennison. Now, he's an assistant coach for the Minnesota Vikings. Now, that's a football team, Jessica, American football. <laughs> was let Yes, was let go from his job after refusing to get a COVID-19 vaccination. Now, Jessica, I was surprised to learn this. The NFL at large, those rules state that all what they call tier one personnel, and that's coaches executives from the front office, equipment managers, and scouts are required to get a vaccine. I was surprised to learn that. Players themselves are not required to be vaccinated, but any player who isn't vaccinated faces strict protocols during preseason training and then throughout the rest of the season. Players who have been vaccinated avoid all that rigmarole. So, Jessica, the question here, and we've touched on the legality of mandatory vaccinations before on this very podcast. Does Coach Dennison have any legal recourse over losing his job for not getting a jab in his arm? Yeah, I don't know. And you mentioned that episode we did with Kevin Troutman, uh, the employment lawyer from Texas, where he answered a lot of these questions. And that's kind of, sadly, an evergreen episode for those of you who want to look that episode up. So does he face legal recourse? The interesting thing that you said, and this is about what I understand in terms of where the law is right now, is that the players themselves, if they say, we're not going to either I'm not answering or I'm not getting a vaccination, then they're treated differently. Now, in this case, the coach isn't just treated differently. He's actually fired. And there are circumstances where I think that's appropriate. Now, we've seen a couple of uh, legal rulings where um, it's been more in the healthcare setting where a hospital has said, look, everybody, if you want to set foot in this hospital, you have to be vaccinated. So, Joe, it kind of comes down to the question of was there a way to reasonably accommodate him? If the answer is no, then, again, I'm not 100% sure where the law is today, but if the answer is there's no way to reasonably accommodate him, then it seems like you really cannot be forced to keep him on. 
it also depends on why he said he wasn't going to be vaccinated, I believe. So I'm just flagging issues for people. Obviously, if you say, I don't want to get vaccinated because I have a medical issue or because I have a religious issue, that might be different from, no, I just don't want to get a vaccine. As you know, I am fascinated by this area. So I think we're going to see many more of these suits to come. And Joe, ending on sports. I think this is where we always end with passing judgment. You can find Joe on Twitter and Instagram at InDepthDay, also www.indepthday.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Levinson Jessica. The podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. We really do love hearing from you, and we'll talk to everybody soon. 